Welcome to Right Rising, a podcast from the Center for the Analysis of the Radical Right. I'm your host, Augusta DeLomo. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Julia DeCook, an assistant professor at the School of Communication at Loyola University, Chicago. She's here with us today to talk to us about what exactly is incel culture and how we should understand their place in society. Julia, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks, Augusta. I'm really glad to be on the podcast. So I wanted to start off with a big, broad question. When scholars, the media, policymakers use this term incel culture, what does that actually mean? I think it's become a little bit complicated, um, especially with how prominent I think incels have been in the media and stuff lately. I think it's a term that's like almost kind of like lost its meaning. Um, I feel like it's become kind of a stand-in for referring to anyone who's misogynistic, whether they identify themselves as incels or not. And I think that can actually complicate matters when it comes to researching these groups because there are actual, you know, incel communities online and men who espouse misogynistic views online aren't necessarily incel. And so I think that can become a little bit tricky. Right. Um, it's almost like that whole thing, like all incels are misogynists, but not all misogynists are necessarily incel. Um, right. You know, the term stands for involuntary celibate. You know, it came out of um, a broader Internet culture um, that actually started in the 90s with Alana's involuntary celibate project. So it was started by a woman and it was more of kind of like a lonely hearts club kind of situation. But then it kind of morphed and evolved into the incel that we've kind of come to know today. Um, you know, they were really popular on like the 4chan message board. They had a pretty prominent, um, you know, community on Reddit, which got shut down. Um, but they're everywhere, right? Like they do have like formal communities. Like there is the incels forum. There are kind of like incels communities kind of scattered here and there. They have YouTube channels and everything else, but it become kind of convoluted, I think, because anytime anyone's misogynistic, automatically they're labeled an incel, but that's not necessarily what it is. And so it's becoming a little bit muddy in terms of like, what is incel culture? Right. And when you, so I think it's important, like you said, to really draw down this wider, more expansive definition of incel to this particular smaller group that you see, like you said, on message boards that was on Reddit. So what do incels in that very narrow sense, what do they want? What are the kinds of things that they're talking about? Well, I think a lot of people have kind of come to know incels by their kind of like entitlement to women, right? They kind of say things like, you know, I, as a man, like, you know, deserve to have a girlfriend or a wife. I deserve to have sex. Um, I'm entitled to women's bodies and everything else which isn't, you know, something that's unique to incels. It's something that a lot of men believe, incel or not. Um, but incels take it like a step further, right? Like their misogyny is like outrageous in certain ways. Um, you know, when you look at incel forums, like they advocate for violence against women. They advocate for um, like legislation that would like force the women to like date incels. Um, even on their forums, like they say things like, oh, if women want to make sure that there are no more incel attacks and they should sleep with us, things like that. And so they they take their misogyny in like a much like grosser, more explicit way than um, I think a lot of men in the society kind of hold some of these views, right? Um, and, but the thing is, though, I think that's the important thing to point out is that incels get these beliefs and ideas from somewhere. Um, and so 
to kind of like look at our culture and look at our media and look at like, you know, how much like media, for instance, and like societies push, you know, romantic and sexual success as like something that people should aspire to. It's not hard to see like why incels may become extremely bitter. Um, but the thing is, though, they take that anger and direct it towards women um, and saying that like women are the cause of their misery rather than kind of thinking about the larger societal structures that may be making them miserable or the fact that they might just be huge jerks who women don't want to be around. So it's a nice guy fallacy, right? Right. And where where is this actually happening? You've talked a lot about message boards. The stereotype a lot of people have of the incel is he's just sitting at home on his laptop, writing on these message boards, writing these horrific misogynistic rants. Is that an accurate depiction of what incel culture is doing uh, on the internet? Are they organizing? Are they sharing content? Are they forming connections with other organizations? I wouldn't say that they're forming connections with other organizations. And I think that's what makes incels not only difficult to define, but like also difficult to study, right? Like they're not going to like go off and start like a, like an incel rights nonprofit. (laughs) Um, They're not, you know, they're not as formalized as say like a men's rights movement, which has been getting more attention in the news recently because of the Roy Den Hollander um, shooting and suicide that occurred. Like, you know, the men's rights movement actually has organizations. Like they have like lawyers who identify themselves as like men's rights lawyers and stuff like that. Right. But you know, movements like the incels, like even the incels deny that they're a social movement. They're not an organization. And there is something that I think they find powerful in that, that they're so loosely connected and networked that it's hard to kind of like pin them down. It's hard to pin down like who might be an incel as a result. So I mean, like the biggest incels forum, it's, it's kind of like hard to ascertain like how many registered users are actually real users. And that's always been a problem in online communities, right? Like just because it has like, you know, say 10,000 registered users, only about a thousand of them are going to be active. And then within that 10,000 or even 1,000, some of them might just be like faking to just gain access to the community, right? Or they're just like, you know, morbidly curious and want to lurk. And so it's complicated to do research on strictly online movements um, like the incels because of this. I think that last point is so critical, especially because a lot of these groups want to appear more powerful than they are, right? It, it is a, it's a good thing for them to show, oh, we have 10,000 members. But then when, as you said, you actually start looking at who is active on these pages, it's a, it's a smaller community than maybe it appears. And I think this draws into a point that you brought up earlier about deplatforming. And many policymakers have called to deplatform far right groups. There's been a lot of discussion on Twitter about misinformation, abusive information, abusive rhetoric. Um, in your research, how effective has deplatforming been? And can you walk us through some examples where websites have tried to deplatform these extreme right organizations? Yeah, definitely. And so, um, you know, my dissertation actually looked at how uh, three groups in the manosphere, um, you know, responded to being deplatformed and how they kind of like reacted to um, like censorship and bans, like even just like the threat of censorship and bans and how that forced them to probably innovate in ways that they probably wouldn't have if they weren't under this kind of like duress. Um, And so, you know, in the case of incels, since we're already just talking about them, um, 
incels was one of the case studies of my group. Um, it was one of the groups that I studied uh, for my dissertation. And, you know, it it's really interesting because incels like, kind of always knew that they were being watched. They always knew that like they had like lurkers in their midst who like weren't actually members of the community. Um, they knew that they attracted a lot of very negative attention. You know, there was a subreddit called incel tears that literally just existed to like point out like how awful the incel community was. Um, and so, you know, like incels knew that like they were being watched on Reddit, for instance. Um, so I actually started from Reddit because, you know, 4chan is anonymous. It's very loosely structured. There's no formal like incels board on 4chan. So I started from Reddit and you know, the incel subreddit, like they were hyper aware of the fact that at any moment they could be removed because there were actual like petitions and like movements and subreddits that tried to pressure the Reddit administration to ban subreddits like incels, among other kind of like hate groups um, that had subreddits like the Donald and alt-right and other kind of communities that we've become very familiar with. Um, but in the case of incels, like they knew that they were kind of like under threat. And so their tactic was to go private. You know, subreddits can go private. You have to be invited to join and stuff. Um, but even that didn't like, you know, save them from the ban hammer, right? Um, eventually they were just completely banned, but they had done nothing to like back up their content like other communities had. So for instance, um, the Red Pill and even the Donald, to give a more recent example, um, you know, they made mirror sites off the Reddit platform where a lot of users like migrated to before the subreddit was banned. So in the case of the Donald, the subreddit was banned not because of its content, but because it was inactive. And I think that got kind of missed a lot in some of the coverage of it. Um, but the Donald users like knew that something was coming and the subreddit had been inactive since I think last year. But you can go find like the mirror of the Donald subreddit and it looks exactly the same. It's kind of eerie. But Reddit's source code is open. And so they just basically took that source code and created their subreddit on a separate, you know, domain so that they weren't like beholden to Reddit's rules anymore. Um, and in the case of incels, they managed to connect with one another because I think they um, were communicating with each other via like private messages and stuff because just because a subreddit gets banned doesn't mean that an account gets banned. Like users don't necessarily get banned after a subreddit does. And so they can be in communication with each other. And one of the moderators of incels started this incels forum. That's probably the biggest one on the internet. And a lot of them migrated there. And they've been a lot more intentional since then in backing up their content, like creating like a wiki even, um, they tried to start like discord channels here and there, but they got banned from there. So there is like technically no official discord channel, even though they keep trying to make one. Um, but it's really interesting how much more uh, intentional they've been in archiving and like preserving their content because they know that at any time it can all go away. Um, so I guess that's what I mean by, you know, they kind of like innovate in ways that they wouldn't have to if they weren't under any kind of threat because they also watch what happened to other groups that were kind of like them. Um, like they, they definitely keep their finger on the pulse of what's happening. So in the case of like the red pill on Reddit, when incels got banned, they freaked out a little bit. 
because they thought like they might be next. And they've been quarantined, I think, for the past two years, but have still not been banned. And so there is something like political about these choices, too. Um, so it's interesting to see how things are kind of evolving online. Um, you know, David Duke just got banned from Twitter today. Yep. Yeah. So it's it's been interesting how platforms have been responding. Um, but the thing is, though, they tend to, I think, respond to what they feel is like the largest public pressure. Um, because, you know, for instance, on Reddit, like Big Tao, men going their own way, is still active. Men's rights is still active. The red pill is still active. You know, red pill might be quarantined, but people can still access it. And even still, um, the worst thing about the fact they're quarantined, um, it made them more popular and more people joined the subreddit. I think you really clearly captured the problems of deplatforming, that in some cases it makes these groups, it, it justifies in their minds that the paranoia that they feel about that there's this great oppressive force on these platforms. And like you said, it just forces them to innovate and become savvier on the internet at evading these kinds of controls. So who then is, if you, as you pointed out, there's all these different ways that groups can get around it, even on sites like Twitter or Reddit that have ex- have said that they have deplatformed some of these extreme groups. So then who is the deplatforming for if it's not actually getting rid of these groups? I think that's um, a really kind of like politically charged question in a way, right? So, you know, deplatforming is effective, but I think it's limited. So I think a lot of people, um, they were like, oh, so you're saying that deplatforming doesn't work at all. And I'm like, you know, that's not necessarily it. But the thing is, though, you know, it it does accomplish a few things, right? Um, it takes them off of like the major mainstream platforms and stuff like that. Um, and for propaganda purposes, like that's really crucial to have like as wide an audience as possible. But it's so easy to evade moderation by just like, you know, using certain acronyms or not putting like the words in the title and stuff like that. Right. Um, and even if people take down the content, it always reemerges because people are saving it locally to their computers. Like in the case of YouTube, you know, Elliot Rogers YouTube channel was removed finally years after, you know, his attack in 2014, after what happened in Toronto in 2018, but people had saved his videos. You can find like full YouTube compilations of every single one of Elliot Rogers videos on YouTube still today. Um, is it hard to find? A little bit, but is it still there? Absolutely. Um, and so it's, I think it's complicated. So like, who is deplatforming for? I think on some level, we do have to realize that these, you know, social media companies are massive corporations that have stakeholders and who risk losing advertisers if they don't act and remove some of these like more nefarious and awful communities or members. But that doesn't mean that all of them get removed, right? Um, so they remove like the people who are the most visible and who are like the biggest, like the celebrities and stuff like that. But they don't remove like the everyday people who believe in this stuff necessarily, right? Um, like, of course, those people still can get banned from platforms and stuff. But um, I think some people pointed out with Twitter's recent announcement to remove like QAnon content, like they're evading that like you wouldn't believe. Um, there is still a ton of QAnon content on Twitter. And so banning hashtags, for instance, like doesn't work. We saw that in the case of Instagram a few years ago when they tried to ban, um, you know, pro-eating disorder and pro-anorexia communities. They 
just completely evaded that. Um, so sure, when you search like hashtag anorexia on Instagram, it won't show you anything, but they just decided to start using different hashtags. Um, and every single time like they catch on to this like new hashtag, they just create a new one. It's constant, right? Um, and so I think that's the same thing that's happening with QAnon. It's the same thing that's happening with these like far right groups. It's the same thing that's happening with the Manosphere. They're just trying to, I think, stay one step ahead of moderators and the platforms. And in some way, they're doing a better job because they're using these platforms exactly how they were designed to be. So, and I think that last point is is absolutely critical. And one thing that you and I have talked about, but I think is something that's lost in wider discussions about where incel culture flourishes is there's kind of a boogeyman of 4chan and 8chan and the dark web is these uh, spaces that are impossible to access when a lot of far right people are originally radicalized through YouTube and how the algorithm works just pushes you further and further into suggested videos that are this uh, misogynistic, racist, far right content that, as you said, the very construct of the platforms are designed to pull you deeper and deeper into these far-right silos. Oh, absolutely. And there's been research that shows that, like, I guess, like, the more, like, kind of outrageous a channel is, the more followers and clicks and engagement it gets. And so the algorithm, it'll push their content because it's getting the most engagement. It's not necessarily, like, looking at, like, the minute details of what what's being said, but it's rather looking at, like, how many people are clicking on this how many people are commenting on this? And if more and more people are engaging with it, then it deems it as popular, right? Algorithms on these platforms, they don't, they don't have like quality filters so much as people want to believe. They just push whatever is popular. That's what it awards. That's its metric. Um, and unfortunately, what we're seeing is that this type of content is popular. And the, the idea of popularity... I, I want to stick on that point for a second, because in some ways, the focus on incels obscures the wider problems of what's driving racism and misogyny in our, we'll just say American society more broadly. Like, can you talk to us a little bit of how incels see themselves as separate from mainstream culture, but in many ways, they, they thrive off an existing ecosystem of misogyny that exists in American mainstream culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um... I think incels want to believe that they're separate from mainstream culture because their perception of mainstream culture is very different, right? So to them, mainstream culture is, you know, feminism and, you know, anti-racism initiatives and, you know, pushing for more like people of color and women of color in media and stuff like that. They see this as mainstream culture, right? Um, and I think that that really highlights, I think, there, the different kind of interpretations of reality that are kind of happening too, right? Um, because, you know, you ask, like, anybody who's, like, a feminist or a race scholar or even, like, a far-right scholar, they can tell you that those things are absolutely not mainstream in our culture. Um, and so I think that's where the huge, like, I think, like, discrepancy is, a discrepancy, discrepancy, discrepancy is in, I think, understanding, like, the incel worldview um, as well as like the MGTOWN, like men's rights worldview, as opposed to what a lot of people feel that reality actually is. Um, so for them, they see like, you know, trying to advocate for more women characters in video games or advocating for more people of color 
um, and better representations of type of people of color in media and stuff like that as a direct affront to what they believe the world should be like. Um, and so I think um, they they are also angry too, though, because it seems as though they feel that there's this kind of like mythos in their head of the kind of privileges that masculinity is supposed to bring to them. And they've been denied those privileges, right? Um, and so their entitlement kind of stems from that in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's, it's interesting too, because I think I just said earlier in the podcast, and we've talked about this before, but you know, they get these ideas from somewhere. They get these ideas from the very culture that they live in, the media that they consume, um, the people that they grow up around. Like men and women are socialized into patriarchy, right? Um, even like the most like well-meaning parents who try to kind of like avoid raising their young sons in a patriarchal kind of like mindset, they end up learning patriarchy from their peers. It's so deeply ingrained that like we may not even realize what's happening before it's kind of like too late, right? Um, that was something that Bell Hooks wrote about in depth and men, masculinity and love. Um, but it's, it's so complicated, I think, for incels because they truly believe that they're like persecuted against because they're not conventionally attractive or they just don't have what they believe are the qualities to successfully have a sexual romantic relationship or they have very kind of like ridiculous standards for the type of women that they feel that they're entitled to. So they want you know, um, young women, for one, they want young women who are virgins, who like have like all these like physical qualities and characteristics that, you know, are kind of impossible unless you're, um, you're kind of a cartoon pretty much. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's really interesting because this like animosity and like anger towards women and like desiring like a very pure virginal woman and stuff like that that's also an extension of you know heteropatriarchal culture right um and so that extends also too that they feel that they need to punish society not just women because they see society as being the problem like feminism gave women too many rights that's like a really big thing in the men's rights movement right um, and they're like defying like the natural order of things. Um, and if things just went back to the way that they were, quote unquote, then both men and women would be much happier. Um, and so they, they constantly talk about like degeneracy and like how society is no longer pure and stuff like that. And that includes things like partying and like premarital sex and drug and alcohol use and everything else. And so the incel worldview is, kind of like warped in a way pretty much because they see themselves as not just like morally and intellectually superior to women but to like everybody normies etc right um so i think understanding that is really crucial to kind of like unpack their ideology a lot more well and i think that explains a lot of the problems that you articulated about deplatforming and reducing the influence of these groups, both online and in our sort of American socialization, patriarchal society, is these ideas, as you said, are, are pulling from somewhere. So that creates difficulty when you know you see politicians talking about you know throwing out words like deplatforming and de-radicalization as if they are solutions when in actuality they're trying to solve a problem that has actually already happened. Right, the person has already been radical radicalized. The 
the content is already on the internet and they're not preventative and really in any way. I think so. And I think like, you know, that's, it's so complicated, right? Because like, you know, people are like, well, we should leave these groups open um, and accessible because then how are we going to like keep tabs on them? And, you know, I'm not someone who advocates for not deplatforming. I think deplatforming is effective, but I, like I said, I think it's limited. And I think, I, I think we also need to really confront like why these beliefs and ideologies exist in the first place, you know, because online life is just a mirror to offline life. And these aren't separate spheres of existence. They're the same. Um, our online world just reflects our offline world. And in fact, you know, the online world can reflect some things that aren't possible in our offline world, right? Um, and so people kind of like feel safer, perhaps to express these kinds of ideas and beliefs. And, you know, incels and men's rights users constantly say stuff like that, like, oh, I can't talk to anybody in my face to face life about this. Um, or like, you know, nobody understands me kind of thing. Um, and so they find community with like minded others online. And so all of these like affordances of like, connection and community and like everything else that extends to, you know, marginalized communities and the offline world also extends to these far right and extremist groups. And I think we need to kind of like be aware of that. Um, and so it's like deplatforming, I would say is probably a good first step, but deplatforming isn't going to get rid of these beliefs and ideologies in our societies and cultures. It just merely removes them from our online spaces. Julia, I think that is a great note to end it on. So I just wanted to ask, where can our listeners hear more from you? Do you have anything coming out? Are you on social media? Yeah, I'm on social media. Um, I also have a website. Um, if people Google me, they can find me. Um, my Twitter handle is at Jules Opolis. Um, so J-U-L-E-S-O-P-O-L-I-S, I think. <laughs> um, and I'm currently in the process of um, revising my dissertation uh, for a book, which I'm hoping to submit in the next two months. And so you probably won't see it until next year. Um, I recently published something in MC Journal about the political aesthetics of trolling. Um, and I've written um, a few things for more popular media uh, re- uh, sources for conspiracy theories and stuff. Um, so I've had some pieces published recently in Open Democracy and Rant Media and the uh, American Ethnologist blog. So Awesome. Julia, thank you. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, this was great. This has been another episode of Right Rising. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.